and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. I am thankful for our shepherding elders, aren't you? Uh, I'm thankful for all of you guys joining with me today as, uh, as a church body to worship and now to study God's Word together. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. If you're new, a very special welcome to you. And if you're looking for a church to be a part of, like this is a good one. I'm just saying, uh, this is a good one. Uh, keep coming if you're visiting, if you're like kicking the tires and thinking, I don't know if this is the place for me or not. Attend one of our starting point events uh, that we have and that will answer just a ton of questions about who we are, our doctrine, our theology, all of that, how we work. Um, uh, and if you're looking for information just today on the church, uh, get your little camera out on your phone and take a picture of that uh, or hold it open to that little QR code on those chairs in front of you. That will open a little website. You've got to click through to it, but it'll answer a ton of questions. Uh, you can uh, sign up for things there. You can see times, locations, things like when we're going to have our next baptism service, all that. Well, let's turn to chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. We're going to dive right into our text Let me pray for us. Would you bow your heads? Heavenly Father, I just echo uh, that prayer that you would be glorified in this, that you would take these, um, these words that you have given through your spirit, through these men that wrote these, that you would move them from just our ears into our minds and into our hearts, that we would not be the same, that we would uh, be changed By the power of your words, it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's remind ourselves where we are in John chapter 6. Jesus had provided a feast for these 20, 25,000 people with only five loaves and two fish out of a little boy's sack lunch. Now, the crowd recognizes this miracle or what the apostle John calls a sign. John gives seven of Jesus' signs. And the crowd recognizes that the power to pull off this miracle could only come from God himself. So they reason, this must be the promised one of God. That that, uh, the promise made to Abraham, to Moses, to David, to the Jewish people, that this must be the one. Now I don't know if they have faith yet, I don't think that Jesus, they think that Jesus is the Messiah, but they... They have an intellectual knowledge here. They know at least he's from God because what he's doing, right? So they try to make him king and do it by force, but Jesus just slips past them. They found Jesus later and his disciples the next day across the lake in Capernaum asking for more bread, more miracles. Jesus proved to us that you are the promised one. But Jesus tells them essentially, look, you're just seeking more bread because you're hungry. But right in the end, he says, in the end, those things I provide for you, they won't provide things that will last. They won't give you satisfaction. And the, and the things you're seeking that I haven't given you yet, that's not going to help either. But what you need is a bread that will last for all eternity And in the end, um, that ends with the line um, of the first I am statement of seven that Jesus makes. A clear claim to divinity 
There is where we left off. Let's pick it up in verse 35 again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's right here that we find the point of the entire chapter leading up to this kind of plateau. It's like the apex of the chapter, but it doesn't go back down here. It begins here and things get really intense. All of these pictures of chapter 6 lead up to this point. All these conversations, these pictures. And then it gets to this point and continues to the end of the chapter. So we don't want to miss what this is all about. With that in mind, let's go back a few verses and work our way back down to verse 35. Let's remember how we got here. Remember this crowd, they are all in fact following Jesus at least in some sense. So some are following him for what he can provide for them. For example, more bread or to be their political king, to throw off Roman rule, to give them freedom. Uh, These are false followers though. Then there are apparently some true followers because they want Jesus, not just the things he can provide for them. They're following, these true followers are following because he actually is the son of God. And God the Father has given these true followers faith to follow him. Like they're legit followers for the right reason. Genuine faith. We would call these true followers or true disciples real Christians. Now I want us to think about something for a moment. Little thought experiment here. Go with me. If you, if you were making up a religion, I mean from scratch, and you wanted to get lots of money, power, and people to follow you, and say you considered success in the sheer number of people that you got to follow you, um, that would be success. Now, you could structure any kind of rules you want to. You can make up whatever you want to make up. Then maybe if the crowd of people are following you grew large enough, the power those numbers of people would give you would increase your money, your influence, all that stuff that people could do for you. You tracking with me? If you played your cards right, then you could start a real movement that would go around the world. You would be really powerful as the founder of this religion. Now we've seen this throughout history, this little thought experiment take place. Cults like Mormonism and Islam are prime examples of a new religion invented based on taking things from another religion. Interesting to note that both of those religions, how similar they are, because they're both based on angels, quote angels, preaching a different kind of gospel through a self-proclaimed prophet. Now the Apostle Paul gives us a warning in Galatians 1.8 that says, but even though we the apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Christian science is another cult simply made up out of Mary Baker Eddy's head. It's neither Christian nor science. So here's, here's my point. If that were your goal, you're just going to make something up, and, and it was simply a made-up religion, it, it wouldn't really matter who followed you or not, and why they followed you. It's just that they followed you, right? Or to say it differently, the people that followed you, there would be no differentiation between true followers and false followers. They're just followers. Are you with me? Now take that thought experiment 
of you making up a religion on your own to get people to follow you. Now compare our thought experiment to what Jesus does right here. If we look to Jesus' ministry from the outside and assume that this guy who made up this new religion based on Jewish teaching, this Jesus guy, you would think that Jesus would take this big crowd following him and essentially tell them what they wanted to hear. Get as many people as possible to follow him, if that were his objective. But that's not what he does here, is it? If you read ahead to the end of the chapter, which I hope you do, you'll realize that Jesus preaches to them in such a way that separates true followers from false followers. True followers from false followers. Watch what Jesus does here. Look with me at verse 27. Let's work our way down to verse 35. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. He says, you work for food, or you could say you work for life that perishes, but instead you should work for a kind of food that doesn't perish, that actually lasts for all eternity. Or to say it differently, you should work for something that will lead to eternal life. Now this crowd responds in verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now we studied this last time. And we'll probably study it next week, and the week after, and the week after. What Jesus is saying is the work is that his followers must do is this. Believe in him, in other words, Jesus, God the Son, whom he, God the Father, has sent. That's the gospel right there. Right there in that verse. Believe in him, Jesus, God the Son, God the Father has sent. Or like we said, the work is to believe in the Son of God. Namely Jesus, who God the Father has sent to earth to save his people. Or we could say it even more clearly than that, couldn't we? The work to get this bread of life is really not work at all, is it? In fact, it's not something that you can even do. Jesus is pointing out something here. But simply, you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the bread of life sent from God the Father to save people. And even, 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 even that believing itself, we call faith, we're going to find out that that's not even possible until we're given that ability by God the Father. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. So the crowd tests Jesus. They test Jesus. Verse 30. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Or in other words, they say, you're going to have to prove to us, Jesus, that you are the one sent from God. And they give him a test. They say in verse 31, here's the test. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven 
to Eve. They are referring to their ancestors, the Hebrew people that had been delivered out of slavery in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea. Now they're in the desert. And God the Father gives them manna every day, six days a week. God had fed those people in the wilderness. Check this out. For 40 years, a couple of million people a day are fed by this bread from heaven. So these folks are saying, that's what God can do. So if you are really God, then prove it by giving us bread from heaven every day. Now listen how Jesus responds. This is pretty good. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you The true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now don't miss this. Don't miss this. The crowd is referring to Moses as being the one who provided manna from the wilderness. In a way they're saying, if you're as good as Moses, you'll be able to do like Moses did and give us bread from heaven. But Jesus tells them, look, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Notice the gives, it's present tense. Jesus is speaking of himself, but it goes right over their head, doesn't it? All they want is bread to fill their stomachs every day, like he had given them in the desert. And given them the day before. Now two things to remember as we get back down to verse 35. One, we're about to get to Jesus' claim to being the bread of life. Spiritually speaking, he is claiming to be this bread that comes from heaven. That the Father provides. He is God the Son. Who has taken on the flesh of man. The eternal God who has taken on the flesh of man. Emmanuel, God with us. In a sense, that's a figurative statement of being the bread because he's not actually a loaf of bread, is he? Like he's not, he's not dough mixed out of flour and baked in an oven. But much more in a real sense, though, spiritually, he is the real bread, the bread that will truly give life. In other words, the bread back in the day pointed to him. So this is strange to think about. In a way, Jesus is being the bread is this metaphor, isn't it? But in another sense, it's, it's much more real picture than bread could ever give life. Physical bread, Jesus is going to give us real life in the Father. Now, sorry if this blows your mind. It does me too. It does me too. Second thing, second thing, is I want us to keep in mind Jesus is about to separate The real followers from false followers. The thing that the people are hearing is they still think he's talking about a loaf of bread that he's going to give them every day. So they ask in verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. What they mean is give it to us six days a week. Give us to us every day. That's what they think he means like the manna on in the wilderness. When they say always, what they're saying is every day we want this bread. Do you have it, Jesus? If you're the son of God, that's what you'll do. Provide for us for all eternity. They think that's what he's talking about. Now, the, this harkens back to chapter 4, if you remember. When he was at, with the woman at the well. Do you remember that? And uh, she's uh, talking to him about water. And he asks for water. And he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask for living water. And he explains what that is. And she says, sir, give me this water 
so I don't even have to come here. Give me this water always. She thought he had been talking about water. The same thing is happening here with bread. And here again, right at the apex of what John is talking about in this chapter about who Jesus really is, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Praise God. Amen? That's good news right there. Fulfillment, eternal life for those that receive the bread. But watch how Jesus is about to separate the true and false followers away. Jesus continues in verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So he says on one hand you can come to me and believe. Oh, this is good. He said, but you've come and you don't believe. Now he's calling out the false believers right to their face. This is, this is cold right here. Now remember our thought experiment, right? Jesus' goal is not to get as many followers in the crowd to follow him as possible. That kind of blows our mind. He only wants the true believers. He only wants the real followers, doesn't he? I want to take just a moment here to point out some some things we've read. Um, take just a little detour uh, here. These are qualities that we see in this whole chapter of unbelievers, false believers. Make sense? Let's take a look at what some of those have drawn these false believers to Jesus. Write these down. Number one, qualities of the false believers. They are drawn by a crowd. They're drawn by a crowd. By the way, if you preach, they get you strawberry, lemon, sugar-free. <laughs> Think about it. We saw this big crowd got bigger and bigger, not just because they saw Jesus, but the crowd that was following Jesus even attracted them. Here's the thing. I'm not arguing against big crowds. I'm not arguing against big churches. I'm not. There are plenty of good, huge, giant churches. But churches are not always called to be big. They're always called to be biblical, but not always called to be big. I heard a preacher who thought every church should grow into the thousands. He would say, healthy things grow, and therefore all churches should grow into the thousands. And he has a point. But I said, you know what else grows? Cancer. And cancer grows big. Just because every, everyone is following after someone or something doesn't mean they are true believers. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, this is... This is Joel Osteen. That's not even my script. <laughs> and false believer, believers are often drawn, not because of Jesus himself, but because there's a whole bunch of other people there. The second quality of false believers is this. They are drawn by supernatural works. They're like, man, this is, this is awesome. He's doing like magic tricks. Like that guy couldn't walk and now he can walk. That guy was blind. He... He can see now. That, that woman, she's alive. He made her alive. They're drawn by supernatural works. Now, that's the case in this crowd, isn't it? The crowd had followed because of big crowd, but also they had just seen Jesus do this miracle the day before, feed all these thousands of people with just this little boy's lunch. But now they demand even more, don't they? We see churches like this all the time. I grew up. In a church like that, 
where experiential worship services were what brought people in. Uh, now, don't get confused. We've been accused at Bentry of being a church like that at times because of extravagant worship. Let me differentiate. We pour our hearts out in worship because we love God. Amen? Amen. And we want to show God that we love him by our singing. But that's far from people that just attend church to see a miracle of something big Someone's leg that was shorter than the other grow longer uh, or, you know, some thing like that. Or someone being given a new prophecy that the Bible never talked about. They go, oh, God's speaking again, something new. By the way, that's Gnosticism. Don't go there. All right. I mean, we want what we want it to be great. I'm talking about us here. We want it to be great for God, but don't, we don't intend for you to be entertained. Does that make sense? Like, we want you singing. We want you being like, God, you are great. All right, qualities of a false believer. Number three, they want physical earthly things done for them. They want physical earthly things done for them. Stuff provided for them. You see that in the crowd. They want more, more bread. Like the breadstick thing is empty and you're at, Olive Garden, you go, could we have some more? Someone, you're wanting to say amen so bad right now. Because <laughs> they want the Romans also thrown out of the land. Their eyes are focused on their need right here on earth. And they really have no concept of eternal things, even if you tell them the eternal things. Jesus had just talked about bread that would endure into eternity. It goes right over their heads because they're false believers. They don't have faith. They don't have the spirit yet. Number four, they are, they make demands on God. They make demands on God. They make demands on God. Give you a moment to write it down. We certainly see it in this crowd, don't we? Making demands on Jesus. We want this bread every day. You do that, we'll, we'll start to believe you're the son of God. They say things like, give us the bread and whatever signs you're going to show us, whatever those are, maybe that'll prove to us that you're God. Now, we see this often in churches that preach a prosperity gospel, don't we? That if you pull the right levers, if you say the right words, then God has to be like this cosmic vending machine and give you stuff. That if you do certain things, you can make demands on God and he will give you everything your little heart ever desired. And they try to clothe that, these kinds of churches that preach this false theology, they try to clothe that with scripture, but take it out of context and then sometimes just make stuff up. Then the fifth quality of a false believer, a false follower is this. They don't find satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They don't find satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Simply put, false followers are always dissatisfied in life and don't rest in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Something's always wrong. They're complainers. They have a complaining 
attitude about following Christ. Listen, some of you have that. You think it's a spiritual gift. Complaining is not one of the spiritual gifts. This is ne- life is never good enough for these people. Here, here's what I'm asking you to do here. Are you following Jesus for one or more of these reasons here? Examine your heart today. Examine your heart. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Watch the differences between true Christians opposed to false Christians in this text here. Chapter 6 through verse 9. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now check out verse 9 there in your own Bible. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Look what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that it's a sin to be rich. He's saying the motivation for being rich is the problem. Because you're not seeking what God wants you to do, but you want what God, what he will do for you. And rich, that's not always money, is it? I mean, that can be wealth, certainly, but it it can also be fame, influence, being handsome or pretty. It can even be the desire to be successful in some area of your life. So how do we combat that in us, true followers, because my natural sinful pre-Jesus side wants all that stuff. How about you? Look again at verse 6. Jesus says, but godliness with contentment is what? Great gain. Now this is a sign of a true believer. Holiness or godliness Holding to the teachings of Jesus and scripture while at the same time having the attitude of God, I'm in your hands. You've blessed me. Thank you for what I have. I'm content with what I have. And I think that's best. Or to say it this way, for a true believer, we see great spiritual growth when we treasure following Jesus, that godliness, they follow the teachings of scripture. At the same time, realizing whatever God has given them in life, whether much or little, health or sickness, money or no money, that as a believer, they're content in that state. So if we have just looked at five qualities of the false believer, let's go back to John 6 now. We've seen all these so far in this crowd that's following Jesus, haven't we? Let's look now at verse 36. Remember, Jesus has just dropped this truth bomb on them in verse 35 and claims to be the bread of life. Now watch out how he turns these unbelievers away. Watch what he says. He says, but I say to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. This is telling. This is telling. These folks are following Jesus up to this point, start looking at one another like, what's he saying? Like, does he not want us to follow him? It's right here we find some solid, solid truth about what that means to be saved from our sin and made a child of God. What it means to be born again, or like we learned in chapter 3, born from above, 
Remember what I said to you before, the truth about what Jesus shares here about himself and who follows him and who doesn't. It may mess up your understanding of who Jesus is and how he saves. These people had just experienced all this teaching, these miracles, and Jesus claiming to be the Son of God, sent by God the Father, clears a bell. I mean, Jesus himself is standing literally in front of them, and Jesus says, you've seen me, and yet you don't believe. So if that is the false followers Jesus has identified, who are the real followers? Who are the true believers here? Well, it's not always clear who are the real followers and false followers. Let's just be honest. I want to look at you and I'll go, oh, you're true believers. But I doubt it. Check out what Jesus says next. This is part of what we call the doctrines of grace. We'll unpack these in future weeks as well, but let's get at these. Doctrines of grace. Dog, buddy. Doctrines of grace. The five major headings that stand together is one comprehensive statement of the saving purposes of God. The doctrines of grace, the five major headings that stand together as one comprehensive statement of the saving purposes of God. Now, the doctrines of grace are nothing new. They come right from Scripture, both Old and New Testament. And if you grew up in the church in the 1600s or 1700s, 1800s, or even 1900, this is simply what you would have been raised on in most American churches and even in our own denomination, the Southern Baptist. This is what the Southern Baptist is based on. This is just orthodoxy. This is just meat and potatoes. Are you with me? This is not some new kind of crazy doctrine that Paul found at a crusade somewhere. Here are five headings. These are sometimes go by different names. And you'll, uh, and if you've been here very long, you've heard me preach on these at different times over the years. The five major headings of the doctrines of grace. Here they are. Number one, radical depravity. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Number two, sovereign election. Number three, definite atonement. Number four, irresistible call. And number five, preserving, preserving grace. I'll give you a minute. There's a lot. The five major headings of the doctrine of grace. Radical depravity. Sovereign election. Definite atonement. Irresistible call and preserving grace. Now, why are these so foreign to so many churches today and so many people in churches if they were such meat and potatoes teaching? Good question. I think there's a ton of reasons, but here are a couple I've come across, among many I've come across. One is that churches began making theology a man-focused religion about 50 to 150 years ago. And less about God, more about man. Second, and this is kind of related, but you'll get what I mean, is during that same time frame, preaching and worship had this tendency to turn into an experience of what do I get when I get out of church or when I go to church. So preaching catered to moi, you, individually. 
and the experience and you became the centerpiece instead of God and telling the truth about scripture. You ended up with preaching that were, was 15 minute sermons that were more helpful sermons like how to improve your life. Getting more out of the time you have here. Like we thought about it. It was all about us, right? And we think it's right unless it was taught about who God is and how we are given faith and how his love saved us out of our wickedness. And preaching that stuff, we find Jesus preaching takes time to unpack and examine that stuff. Man, I couldn't preach for 15 minutes to save my life. That's not funny. (laughs) Okay, it is. What's very cool is that churches like us that are going back to verse-by-verse teaching are rediscovering that this is at the center of how we're saved according to Jesus and his his apostles and the teaching of the New Testament. I mean, this is, I mean, it's just exploding. I don't know if you realize. As Jesus brings these up, we, we too will unpack these and go through them in detail. We'll, we'll let Jesus just teach us. So if you don't understand them or you disagree with them or you have some scripture right there you look at uh, and are wrestling with, by the way, I, I, I give you that little abbreviated dog, D.G, D.O.G. <laughs> Real good at spelling dog. Because that's where, we start writing that in the scripture whenever we see a doctrine of grace. We just simply write it out by the side of it. If you've never seen them before, when you get through with the gospel of John, with Jesus and John the gospel, really this chapter and the next few, you're going to start seeing dogs everywhere. Like they're all through scripture. So if you look at my Bible, I literally have D-O-G and the passage underlined starred and where that place is. Now, the way I just said it on the surface, it sounds like something new, but it's not. It's something that the church lost. The doctrines of, not all churches lost it, but the doctrines of grace are what is at the heart of the Reformation 500 years ago. It's literally what started our denomination. The Reformation is what reformed the true church 500 years ago now from a false gospel that had crept into the Roman Catholic Church over the years. The Roman Catholic Church had become, and quite frankly still is, a non-biblical church. That's not to say that all Catholics are not saved, but that the way of salvation They strayed from what the Bible said as a church and what Jesus clearly teaches right here and simply made out of uh, thin air a new religion. We'll get to this, but the five solas of the Reformation, which distinguish the Reformers from the teachings of Rome, they include sola scriptura, Scripture alone, sola Christus, Christ alone, sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and sola deo gloria, For the glory of God alone. These five statements of the evangelical faith are the foundation of what distinguished theology of the Reformation from the theology of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. And and it still does today, by the way. We'll see more of this as Jesus teaches teaches us. But let's look at what Jesus says uh, is the way that we're saved. Here's the foundation. Verse 37. All that the Father 
gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, you can underline that in your Bible and write out beside it, D-O-G, doctrines of grace. Now, why, what is Jesus saying here? Why is he saying this? Well, he's saying a lot. Remember, he's just pointed out the fake followers just before this. Now he addresses how to know who the real followers are. Now break this down with me. Look at the first part of verse 37. All the Father gives me. Stop right there. Make sure you understand the basics of what Jesus is saying. That God the Father is giving something to Jesus. He's giving people. Look at the word all first. A-L-L. Who is the all Jesus is referring to? The believers, yes. Is it the whole world everyone ever created? No, no, no. That would be universalism, wouldn't it? It couldn't be that. We know at least it's a subset of all the people ever created. Because we just heard Jesus point out the unbelievers, the fake followers. So we know that since he is now talking about believers... So the all word here is talking about all the believers, the real followers. You with me? Or another way to say it is that that there is a complete number of true believers, a total number of all of them. The sheep means all of them. No one left behind. But then Jesus says that the Father gives them to me. Now, what do we know from this statement? Think hard with me. That God the Father has given true believers to Jesus, the Son. Plain as day, isn't it? But the next part is fascinating. Think about this. Jesus says, all of them will come to me. So you can put that all together in a different way. All believers who come to Jesus are the ones that the Father has given me. Consider this. None of the total the Father has given the Son will be missing. You with me? We'll learn later, Jesus prays to the Father before his death. He prays, I didn't even lose one. It's why he goes after the one lost sheep, because that sheep's his. And then that last line, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He'll never, never let go of his sheep. He keeps them safe. Praise God. We don't have to keep ourselves saved. He keeps us saved if we are a real believer. Now, we'll really get into this in coming weeks because, well, because Jesus does. By the way, praise God for that, that he never lets us go. Amen? He never lets us go. But here's what I want to show you. Do you remember a few weeks back we talked about total depravity? That's a dog doctrine, right? It's one of those five major doctrines we've talked about. We call it today radical corruption in our list. The doctrine that says in the fallenness that we are born into, into when we are born into this sinful fallen world, that we cannot not sin. The fallenness, the simple world captures us. It grips our bodies simply being born. Not that we are utterly as evil as we possibly could be, but that every part of our life has been affected by sin. Now remember that. Hang on just a second. That's important to understand because if that is true 
and we believe it to be true, then we are totally incapable of saving ourselves. You with me? Or in other words, there's nothing we can do or say that could save us from the sin we find ourselves in. Someone say amen. That's like old school preaching right there. Now this is why verse 37 is such a dog verse right here. Now check out this word. I I want to show you in two forms of this word here. First the verb, then we'll look at the noun. We've looked at this before if you've been here. Monergistic. Monergistic. Here it is. Only one working to accomplish a task. Monergistic. Only one working to accomplish a task. A task. What the word literally means is mono, Latin, meaning one. And erg, E-R-G, means literally a unit of labor. It's where we get the, uh, the word energy, in erg, G. So it means one with energy working to accomplish the task. You, you, re- you with me? So if we apply that to what Jesus is talking about here and know that it's only God, write this down. This is a doctrine of grace and reformed theology. This is how we are saved at the most basic, basic, basic level. The noun, monergism. Monergism, the work of regeneration in the human heart is something that God does by his power alone. The work of regeneration, being born again in the human heart, is something that God does by his power alone. Like God does half the work and we do the other half? No. That's not right. It's not a 50-50 deal. It's not, it's not even a 99% and we do the 1%. It's a 100% deal of God, 0% me deal. It's all God. He does it all. It has to be that way. We simply don't have the power to save ourselves, to bring life to our dead spirits. We, We can't. It's like saying, I gave birth to myself. Well, no, you didn't. Your mama and daddy had a big part of that. He alone has the power to change the disposition of the human soul and the human heart and mind to bring us to faith in Christ. We can't do that. That's what Jesus is saying here in verse 37. He's saying a lot more, but that's what he's saying. The faith, the Father has given me this faith, the ones that will be true followers. He's given that faith to. Now, knowing what we know now, let's read it again. Jesus tells the crowd in verse 37, all the Father gives me, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus is saying the Father chooses who he will give to the Son, and all those he gives will come to Jesus. Why? How? Monergism. God calls them. He made them alive. And on top of that, Jesus will never lose even one that comes to him. Not even one. Now, we've covered a great deal. We've covered a great deal. Next week, we'll dive in further into this part because Jesus has given us truth. Not done, not done. Don't get excited. But the question, 
we come to is why does this even matter to me? Why does this matter to you? You go, well, that's nice, Paul. How do I live this out? And the answer is Jesus separating his true followers from the false followers. In the end, the false followers, the unbelievers, will turn away. But the real followers, those who truly believe and are called, will follow Jesus until the end of their lives. Or when Jesus comes to take them all home. I'm thinking that day's coming, by the way. And the rest, the unbelievers, they will be judged. They'll live out their life. They'll be judged for their sins. Now, do you remember this passage from Matthew 7, 13 through 14, when Jesus is preaching and he says to true believers, see if you remember this, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard. That leads to life. And those who find it are. Say it with me. Few. Brothers and sisters. This is a hard teaching. This is a hard teaching. The vast crowd. Following Jesus. And John 6. Are about to turn around and leave him. And many of them will be calling for his crucifixion. In a matter of days. If Jesus wanted to, he would go, oh, just follow me. Everything will be all right. And only a few, few will follow him. But Jesus doesn't do that. He didn't try to get the false followers to turn. He goes, they're not real followers. The easy way to follow Jesus is the wrong way. And the crowd goes that way. Now, here's something to consider as Jesus is separating the true followers from the false followers. Jesus is going to make clear that although salvation is free... He pays a cost. Praise God. He went to the cross for us. But following Jesus is not free. In other words, it costs something to follow Jesus, doesn't it? When we call Jesus our Savior and Lord, He saves us and pays the price for our sin on the cross. But the Lord Part, but the Lord part of this title means he is now our king. We follow him and his plans for our life. Life becomes all about our repentance and not seeking our own plans for our life, our will, our wants, but rather to lay them all down and say, not my will, but your will be done in my life. Remember earlier when I had had us do this the thought experience, like if we were inventing a religion. You remember that? This is one of those things that convinces me that following Christ is not a made-up religion. Otherwise, Jesus would have either let people do what they simply wanted to do, or we would have given them a laund- he would have given them a laundry list of do's and don'ts and made people believe that they were earning their salvation somehow if they did everything on that list right. By the way, that kind of religion and really all other religions are what we call synergistic. Meaning it is more than one person doing the work of salvation. It is what the person does and God does to save them. But Jesus says, no, it's all God. It's not you. None of it's you. As we close and go into a time of just prayer, 
I would like you to close your eyes for a moment and just contemplate something. Are you a real follower? One of the real few that will sell out completely and leave your life behind and follow. Leave your wants, your desires and say, your will be done. Heavenly Father, we come to you as believers. We pray for those in our midst that are not believers, that you would call them to life in you right now, that you would give them faith to believe in a world that says there is no God. God, would you make blind eyes see, deaf ears hear? Would you make the spiritually dead alive in you right now. Right before the sermon, this early in the service we read that passage of John, I'm sorry, Romans chapter chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. For it is from the abundance of the heart we are redeemed, we are regenerated and with the confession of our mouth we are saved. Have you come to that truth? Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Simply tell Him right now, I believe. I believe. I believe you, Jesus, are the Son of God. If that's true, convert. You know what I mean by convert? Change teams. Follow Jesus now. And I get it, you won't know anything at first. But listen to me, you've been made alive in Christ Jesus. You've been given faith. Join with us, we'll help you as just brothers and sisters. Because now that's what we are, brothers and sisters in the faith, to help you walk. Start with getting baptized in a few weeks. We'll have a baptism service. Come every week. Join this place. Tell people that you are saved. After our gathering here and just after this, the last songs here, we're going to have our elders out in the corners of the room here. They'll have a little sign on them that says, Elder, Shepherding Elder. You can pray with one of them. You can visit with one of them. and Tell them you believe. What do I do now? But let's thank him for saving you. God, I thank you for saving me. I thank you for saving all the believers in this room. And God, for those that are still spiritually dead in our families and in our midst, God, that you would call them to life by your power through the death of your son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentreeChurch.com.